You're listening to The Currency Welcome. I'm Mike Gast and I'm your host, and this is episode number 141 of the podcast. Today is January 12th. It's Monday, 2024. And last week I had Myron Weber. You probably know Myron because he's been a guest on the podcast a few times. He's a good friend of mine and he joined me on my YouTube channel. We had a live stream last week and we talked for about an hour and a half on the concept of virtue and how it applies to business and life. I'd like to share that as today's episode. I thought it was an interesting conversation. You might find a few things in there that you enjoy. Check it out. And if you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel. I'm going to be doing a lot more content there, live streaming and uh, videos, etc. Of course, um, I will always publish these types of conversations to the podcast, interviews and so on. But I will be doing the podcast over on YouTube from time to time. So make sure you subscribe there. You can watch live, comment, interact and so on. All right. So without further ado, it's me and my good friend, Myron Weber on Virtue. I'm sitting here with my good friend, Myron Weber. And I can say good friend Beyond just uh, the digital space, we've met face-to-face. Hey, what's going on, Mike? Yeah, we've eaten barbecue together. We've eaten barbecue together. That's right. That's right. Uh, So I'll reintroduce you once we have a few people in the chat. But Myron Hales from, is it Irvine, California? No. Irvine, California. Irvine. Look at that. See, I'm paying attention. Uh, So I'm based here on East Coast time in Charleston. Myron's in Irvine. But Myron made a trip out in October. It's the first time we met face to face. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. It was a lot of fun. Appreciate your hospitality very much. Well, I wish I was more hospitable because we set this we set this visit up. You were planning to come out, check out the city and 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 we could meet. And then after you set up your trip, then I jumped into the political race, this the city yeah. council race. And so that was just like that was like two full-time jobs, the city council race. I'm like, oh no, you know, I'm, but anyway, we, I made, I made some time, but I felt like I was distracted. I shouldn't say I felt, I mean, I was a little distracted, but then more so than usual, but we did get to hang out a bit. I mean, we got out for barbecue. We got to hang out and I got to enjoy the city, uh, with my son and we, we had a really good time. It was a great trip, relaxing, fun and, uh, good food. So yeah. Success all around. We went to church together, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So, Myron, for the audience, I know these things, obviously, but you own a consultancy called Northwood Advisors. Do you mind just telling folks a little bit about, like, your background and, and what you do? Yeah, yeah, happy to. Thank you for the opportunity. So it's basically uh, 50% programming and 50% consulting is sort of the way I break it down. Uh, I am a a programmer by background, but I've also done a lot of work in consulting. And as as certainly, again, Mike, you know these things, but for, for those who don't, uh, mental modeling is something that I have a real passion for and interest in. And so being able to think systematically about problems that need to be solved in business and design solutions, but then not stop there to be actually then able to implement solutions in Mm. code where there's a software solution. So mostly what we do is to help midsize and large companies solve data problems where they have an expertise in something other than solving complex data problems, but they need that at the core of their business, some sort of algorithm or a large amount of data that they need to process or things that uh, 
that we can help them with in that regard. So we're both able to look at the need as well as then implement the solution. That's cool. And I'm learning here as we go how to how to work <laughs> how to work the, the software. So uh, thanks, Myron. That's awesome. I I, I want to talk about the software and the podcast and the color in a second here. But I, before I do that, you mentioned mental models, mental modeling. I think a lot of people know what that is, but do you mind just explaining what a mental model is? And we're, we're not, this show is not going to be about that today. We're going to be talking about virtue in business and in life, but I'm just, if you don't mind unpacking mental models for a moment. No, no, I don't mind at all. Uh, I, I'll go as long as you let me. Uh, <laughs> it's no, in brief, mental modeling is a way of thinking uh, systematically about the world in whatever domain uh, is relevant. If it's in business, if it's in your personal life, if it's uh, thinking big and philosophically, but thinking about the world in a systematic way so that when you act with intention, you're more likely to get the outcome that you want because you have a better way of understanding the world. And there really are two dimensions of mental modeling. Uh, and I think of it as the essential and the analogical. The essential way of thinking about the world is to really try to understand it in terms of structures and functions. Because that's really what any mechanical system, certainly, you have the physical stuff, the structures, and then you have the behavior or the actions of it, the, the functions, so structures and functions. Then in human systems, which is really where we apply mental modeling, there's a third component, which is psychology. So the structures of the functions and the psychology of the mm -hmm. system, that's the essential way of thinking about it. But Really, I think the more interesting thing that, that we add to that for mental modeling is the analogical way of thinking. So what is this thing like? So, for example, um, in, my, in a business that I was a partner in many years ago, it was a consulting business, a, a systems integration company. And I started looking at other companies and how they ran, not, not other companies, but companies in other industries and how they ran their business and started looking at, well, hey, we run our business this way, but um, let's think about how Costco runs their business. Are there things we can learn from Costco, sure. even though it's a completely different business, completely different industry that we could apply to our business? Are there things we could learn from General Motors uh, and apply to our business. So thinking analogically of what other things can we apply. And so, so you, when you say analogically, you're, you're speaking in analog. We're looking for analogs, analogous. Exactly. So, yeah. Right. Cool. All right. So we've got a couple people here uh, watching. Welcome to the stream. Glad to have you guys along. I'm sitting here, uh, not sitting in the same room, but digitally with my buddy, Myron Weber. He's uh, he's a consultant and and uh, and programmer, kind of data architect. I don't know. I, I I'm a marketing guy, so I'll I'll throw out a bunch of technical gobbledygook and get all of it wrong probably. Uh, but so do me a favor. He's going to correct you're right me. But so if far. You're, all right, right so far. Look at that. I'm batting a thousand. Um, the host is always right. Is that right? Or is it the guest is always right? I've got, I can't remember how that works. <laughs> well, I'm going to guess that in this case, the guest will not always be right. Oh, no. Well, that's why we're good <laughs> friends. I think we, but, but if you are uh, watching right now, do me a favor in the chat and just say hello and let me know how the audio levels sound. Uh, I can tweak those a little bit to make sure that Myron and I are 
coming through loud and clear. And as you're doing that, I know there's a little bit of a lag. Usually I'll ask and then, you know, we'll get some comments in a minute or so. We're open to taking questions. So as you're watching, if you have a question, just throw it in the chat. I'll try to keep an eye on that and we'll, uh, we'll say, we'll try to answer those. But um, if you're looking at this, and this is just my hang up, I shouldn't even say anything because I'm going to draw attention to it. Uh, I'm working with new equipment. Myron looks good. He's got like human flesh color. Uh, I look like I'm, I, I don't, I look like I'm, well, I don't know what I look like. But anyway, I'm working on the technology as we go through these uh, streams and we're doing interviews, et cetera. You'll notice a change in the color and the appearance of the podcast. It's all new to me. But it's fun. Now, so. uh, from from what I'm seeing on my screen, I think that I look a little too red. I'm not I'm not actually sunburned. Uh, I just, <laughs> and and you actually look pretty good. So it may be the monitor. It may be I don't know what it is. But uh, well, I guess once it's up on YouTube and we go back and and look at we it, can, we'll be able yeah. to see. One thing that's interesting, just to, as a side note, and we're going to get into this discussion on virtue in half a second here, but. One thing that's interesting to me about things like color, sound, taste, how relative those things are. Uh, you, you know, you you see something, you go, oh, it's red, and I, I can remember that red, and you, you know, you, you think you can go to the paint store and pick that out, but all of a sudden, when you see other colors, you and you think you grab the right red, you bring it home, and it's completely different than than what you're trying to go for. So it's amazing to me how much like colors are relative. So. If you were on screen by yourself, you'd look great. And if I were on screen by myself, I'd look great. But you put the two together and it's like, okay, something's something's broken here. But I look, I think it's very um, desaturated and also, no, not that anybody cares. This is just me being, being a geek, but desaturated and also low contrast. But okay, uh, enough of that. Um, so no comments in the chat yet. I know somebody's there. I know you're watching. Uh, if you are watching, do me a favor, throw a hello in the chat, say hey. If you have any questions as we go, uh, please um, please be sure to ask. You know what, if I were really clever, and I think I can do this, Myron, uh, there's gotta be a way. Well, I won't do it now. As I'm learning, I could have put your name up on the screen. That way when people join, they'd know who you are. But uh, <laughs> this is the problem when you're first. <laughs> So well, you know what that means? It just means you're going to have to have me back on again. Yeah, well, I, think I, this I, is... I warned you that I would weasel my way into uh, into your podcast more often. Since, since I love it. My love my it. former podcast, the the uh, uh, Mental Supermodels, is, best uh, name ever, Mental Supermodels. I uh, uh, it, it's on indefinite hiatus. Uh, I'm not uh, I'm not one who can podcast solo. I did a solo podcast a long time ago uh, in my area of uh, data modeling, data warehousing, business intelligence. Mm. And it was really, really, uh, I loved doing it, but it was, I'm just not good at solo podcasting. And since my co-host for Mental Supermodels, Jeremy, has been uh, unavailable, uh, we're on, I would say, indefinite, if not permanent hiatus. Uh, so I got to come back and hit you up to uh, to get out the podcasting bug. There you go. Well, you're you're a fantastic motivator and you're always game, which I appreciate because there are things I'd like to do. And I'm like, oh, I really want to. And you're like, yeah, well, let's do it. And I'm like, yeah, why don't we do that? <laughs> so this is good. Well, let's let's jump into today's topic. You know, you and I were kicking around some discussions uh, you know, about a few weeks ago, 
And one of the things that we were kicking around was this concept of virtue, you know, and virtue as it applies to business and also life. And um, I, I thought that, I think we both agreed that would be an interesting discussion. When you hear the word virtue, because I think that that's a loaded word, and I think it means different things to different people. When you hear the word virtue, what comes to mind for you? I think it applies to really the person. So virtue is the individual working out of whatever is considered good. And so that's what it really comes down to is, well, how do we define goodness? Uh, what, how do we define the, the purpose of life in order to then be able to say, okay, we have some sort of idea of goodness or of the, the purpose of life, but how do we work that out at an individual level? What's a virtuous person? What's a virtuous life? What is individual virtue? So to me, that's the way I think of it. It's really bringing it down to the personal level as opposed to the abstract, philosophical, ethical level. So you're saying... That's, uh, what do you think? Well, I was just going to... I want to re... So, so what I think I hear you saying is that virtue is an expression of, of personal goodness. Is that, is that accurate? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. So what I'm saying is, is virtue is not, is not abstract. It's not what you think it's what Mm. you do. So you Mm. can have whatever good intentions you want to have, but how you behave is the expression of virtue or lack of virtue. Sure. No, I like it. And I think, so you asked me what, you know, what do I, what do I think virtue is? I mean, to me, which I think aligns with what you're saying, the way I think of virtue is as moral excellence. You know, and that's, it's another phrase for virtue. It's like, well, what is virtue? Virtue is moral excellence. And I, and I think, I think you can't be morally excellent without living it out. So I think to your point, it's not just an abstract concept of goodness, but it's really like, what does that look like in a lived, as the kids say, in a lived experience? <laughs> there's so yeah. much language these days. I just feel like there's certain phrases that have become very popular in certain segments. You know, so, so in some segments of the web, it's very therapeutic. How that all make you feel, and um, and then there's this kind of intellectual web. I think lived experience is one of these phrases that I, that I bump up against. But yeah, I, I would tend to agree. I guess then the question becomes, well, how, how do you know what's good? If, if we're agreeing using phrases like moral excellence or, uh, you know, what does it look like to live the good through your life? Like, how do you know what is good or what is moral? I was hoping you would tell me. Oh, no. Well, the podcast is over, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Well, here, here's... Uh, my clearest current thinking on that, I've sort of recently done a survey of philosophy. So I studied a lot of philosophy when I was an undergraduate back in the 80s. And I, I was not a, I was neither a philosophy major nor a philosophy minor, but I was actually really close to a philosophy minor uh, in, in my undergraduate. So, uh, and I, I realized that whether it's just life perspective or you know, the wisdom that may come with age. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out if I've gained any wisdom with age or whatever. <laughs> you have. But I, yeah. I understand 
the philosophy uh, that I studied back then a lot better now on going back and reviewing it. And and part of what I see in there is that that sort of philosophy from the Enlightenment forward is largely a struggle to understand how to define goodness, morality, virtue, ethics, how whatever terms you want to put on it without uh, without a reliance on on God and in the Western tradition, particularly without a, a reliance on the on the Christian God or the judeo-Christian God. And I think and you and I are both Christians, so bringing it back to the the real ultimate standard of goodness is, is rooted in God and the struggle to try to create morality or ethics without God, I find to be pretty muddled. Now there are folks who disagree and, and I'm very, very open to, and I, I, I certainly don't mean, want to demean anyone and, and say that, you know, no one can be good if they're not, uh, if they don't believe what I believe or, or that sort of thing. Sure. I'm just saying in my recent survey of philosophy, I do find it very muddled to try to come back to some sort of concept of goodness apart from God. Well, I, I hear you. I mean, I, I think um, <laughs> I bump up against this as well. And, and you'll see it often in interviews like these online, uh, maybe a level or two up from you and I, but I'll, I'll see Sam Harris being interviewed by, say, a Jordan Peterson or or a, a Christian of some sort, and and you know they'll they'll challenge Sam, and this is kind of the question usually that's brought up if you're if you don't believe in the, in the in the transcendent, if there's nothing outside of the material world, well then, what's good? Because it ultimately becomes very um, uh, you know it's kind of pragmatic. It's like what's good for me in the moment. So how do you know what's uh, what, altruism or what you know? And, and often a guy like Harris will just respond, well, everybody knows what's good. You don't, you don't need that to know that it's good to care for a child. It's like, okay, but, but it seems like we're assuming a lot of things there. Like what makes it, why is it good to care for a child? Well, it just is. Well, that, that's a very unsatisfying. I mean, I think you and I as human beings, our, 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 our physical and psychological, emotional wiring is to want to care for a child. So I, I, I don't, I'm not over here questioning, should I? But at the same time, if you look at our society, there is, um, you can go to abortion, which is like the big, you know, uh, but then you can even look at things like, well, you know, putting your kid in daycare. And I'm not judging one way or the other, but you see how this goodness discussion starts to come into play on the more finer points. And, and, and so I, not to go too long here, I, I'm just kind of agreeing with what you're saying is, there's a lot of unsatisfying answers in secular philosophy when it comes to things like truth, goodness, and so on. Uh, and I hear you. You don't have to be a Christian to be good. So I guess let's, let's pick that apart a little bit. Why is it that you can be good outside of being a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim? Let, let's just take the big three. I'm not trying to exclude any faiths. So you take the big three and they have moral codes. How is it that you can be good without ascribing to moral codes of the big three. Do you have any thoughts on that? I'm putting you on the spot. That's why I'm here, to be put on the spot. So I think that, that it, well, that's why I said I think it's difficult. So the philosophical, uh, the philosophical tradition is largely trying to figure out how do we do that. So um, 
Sam Harris is right in the sense that, yes, we all know uh, what's good, but but why do we know? How do we know? Uh, and I believe I haven't read much Sam Harris. I haven't read any of his books. I've, I've read some of his articles and I'm familiar with some of his thinking. But, you know, I th- believe that he ascribes to the evolutionary view of of morality that we evolved to uh, whatever understanding we have. Uh, but I. I think if we if we try to say well what are the what are the principles that everyone would agree with I think of it in terms of uh well okay so let's let's start in in the Old Testament uh the prophet Micah he talks about uh that that God has shown you what is good to act justly to love mercy and walk humbly with your God and so if to to act justly, that means to hold yourself to a high standard. To love mercy means that you're going to not necessarily hold the other person to that same high standard, right? So I'm gonna I'm gonna hold myself to a high standard, but when you fail, I'm gonna show you mercy. So to me, that that is uh, an expression of virtuousness, and then the the third component of that being and walk humbly with your God. Well, even if you take the God part out of it. Um, can we agree that acting justly, holding ourselves to a higher standard, and loving mercy, not expecting the other person to be perfect, is a, a foundation of a virtuous life? And if so, again, where where does that come from? Without without any sort of transcendent transcendent value, uh, in in reading I've done, for example about some of the uh, the tribes uh, in South America who were still there in like you know the Amazon jungle uh, coexisting with with the uh, European influx and so um, you know and some of these tribes were, were cannibals and they mm. would and their their ethic was um, it's okay for us to do whatever we want to your tribe as long as we're treating ourselves okay within our tribe. So the, mm-hmm. the, the virtue there was all about how do you treat your own tribe? Because we know that yeah. other tribe's going to come and try to kill us and eat us, and we're going to go try to kill them and eat them, but we're virtuous within our own tribe. Well, I would even, uh, so, so I would even add to that. I mean, I like what you're saying. Different cultures have different values, um, we got a question here. I'm just going to put it up on the screen. Can you see that, Myron? You see the question, the quote? Yeah. Yeah, so mostly day hiking. What do you mean by justly? Righteousness? Do you mind taking a, a run at that? I, I want to I get back to one of the points you made, but you, you go ahead. I, what do you mean by justly when you say that? So... Uh, I would start with, okay, so the quote I made was from the Old Testament, but let's then bring it forward into the New Testament with, uh, with what, what Christ said, which is, um, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, which is the summation of, of the table of the law. So doing justly toward your neighbor is to treat them the way you would want to be treated is, is a good understanding of it. Obviously, there are lots of, of individual moral principles do not uh, do not murder, uh, do not steal, do not lie, do not covet, all of these individual moral things we could break down. But 
acting justly can be summarized in love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I just realized I was muted. I'm uh, still learning my software here, ladies and gentlemen. So that's good. So thank you. Uh, and thanks for the question, mostly day hiking. I, I, I was thinking about when you talked about this Amazonian Amazon, the tribe in the Amazon, it, it made me think virtue can mean different things in different societies, or maybe a better way to say it is different societies have different virtues. So I, I think of like Greek or Roman societies, uh, especially Roman, I know that um, it was virtuous to be loyal uh, to your family and your city. And you might say, well, that's still the case, but it's not necessarily virtuous to be loyal to your city anymore. I mean, you might, we see it show up maybe in sports teams, like, you know, back, back East, back uh, Northeast in, in the Rochester area. Everybody loves Buffalo Bills because that's part of the region. Buffalo's, you know, an hour down the street, down, down the highway. Uh, that's a little different though than being willing to go to war. So what I'm thinking with this Amazonian tribe is it might be virtuous to wipe out a competing tribe. Because in that world, it's kind of kill or be killed. They're, they're, they're going to come for us. We have to go for them. So it's virtuous to be brave in, in, uh, in, in, in war. It might be virtuous to take advantage of an opponent when you have the opportunity. In fact, showing an opponent mercy could be, like we would think that being merciful, especially coming out of the Western and the Christian tradition, being merciful is a virtue. But I would, I would wonder if in that tribe being merciful to an outgroup, is that a virtue? Uh, it might be seen actually as a flaw. Can, I mean, Nietzsche I, hated the Christian, or Nietzsche hated the Christian concept of sacrifice, weakness, mercy, love. Go ahead. Yeah, what were you going to say? Well, can I just take a little rabbit trail and then come right back to this this topic. So sure, uh, sure. the rabbit trail is, as, as you know, uh, over the last couple of years, I have... Uh, intentionally consumed less and less media. I, I don't watch the news uh, on TV. I don't. I have a TV. It's not even connected to anything. Uh, I don't watch the news online. I don't go on Facebook or or social media. Uh, and and I I don't I don't I essentially I try not to consume propaganda. And <laughs> part of what's happened to me. Over that time, and and I not to talk too much about myself. I know people didn't show up to hear Myron talk about Myron, but uh, one of the things that's happened is that I've become a much more empathetic person mm. by not having these um, sources of information that are trying to trigger me, trying to create outrage, trying to pit one side against the other, and so I. More so than in the past. It's not that I'm good at it now. It's that I was really bad at it before, and I'm Fair a little enough. better at it now. But the ability to empathize and think from the other person's perspective. Mm. So the uh, to come back to that topic and think empathetically about those tribes in the Amazon, it was not an easy life. Uh, it was a very, very tenuous life. Uh, I don't know statistics off the top of my head, but the uh, the life expectancy was very short. The infant mortality rate was extremely high, on the you know the brink of starvation. In fact, 
I'll just now tie this back to some of the philosophical rabbit trails. Uh, you, uh, started some of the uh, survey of philosophy I was doing, I was looking at what we would consider the the trinity of the uh, state of nature theorists. Right, you had Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau who all yeah. thought about the the, uh, the state of nature, and Rousseau's concept was was that man in the state of nature was what he called the noble savage. Right, whereas Hobbes had the opposite view, which is it's a war of all against all and scarcity and his famous quote uh, that life was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short. Yeah. Well, the the life of those tribes in the Amazon and this is all after the European incursion. We don't know what it was like before. Or at least I don't know what it was like before that. But but at this time uh, when we're talking uh 1800s and even up into the 1900s, uh, uh, really even post-1950 in some cases, their life was very hard and they were on the brink of starvation or death. And so how would you behave in that situation? Or even reading I've done about uh, the siege of, of Leningrad during during World War II, um, and it, it was essentially survivors said that, you know, the people who survived were the ones who were willing to uh, steal food from a starving person so that they and their family could live, or even in some cases resort to cannibalism, that sort of thing. So if we put the most empathetic construction possible on it, it's like we have to think of, it's easy to be virtuous in, in in a situation of plenty of, okay, I'm going to share, but if it comes down to I or my family or my children will starve uh, if I don't uh, take from that other person, if I don't sure. kill that person who's my competition or even potentially kill that person and eat them, which, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> that's obviously show, the extreme. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which I'm not advocating, to be clear. Well, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> well, I think I, I, I appreciate what you're saying, and I, 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 you're making a good point, which is there are certain things that um, are necessary in different moments, uh, and that doesn't necessarily make them good or bad. Like, you know, I remember growing up as a young boy, good Catholic boy, and you're taught, like, thou shalt not steal. And... But then, of course, like you, you, as kids, you always come up with these. But what about, you know, what what if I'm on a desert island with a woman and there's no church to be married? Are we allowed to to be married? Like, oh, God will see you as married if you, it was like, well, how does that work? Because, you know, you're just a kid. So, so thou shalt not steal. What if we're starving? It's okay to steal food to feed your family if that's what you have, you know, like these, these kind of conundrums. But I think, and I, and I appreciate that empathetic approach. I guess what I'm getting at, not so much in the moment, but more a little bit more theoretical, but still in practice, like different societies have different virtues based on their value sets. And I'm not saying that they're all equal. I think some societies are actually better than other societies. I'm not a multiculturalist who thinks everything's equal and we just have to learn to appreciate. I'm not saying that there's one that's best. I just mean to say that I think because I believe in the transcendent and because I believe in Christ, uh, who it, the way I understand is, is truth embodied, then for me, truth is a thing. It's not uh, relative. 
So there's a relativistic aspect of virtue in the sense that each culture has its own set of virtues. But then at the same time, from a Western slash Christian, Judeo-Christian perspective, there are a set of virtues that historically we've agreed upon. And those transcend situations. Uh, it's, it's, you know, so, so then I, I guess to, to, I'm going a little long on this. I'm kind of curious about what does virtue mean today in our society? Because I think things have changed. We're, we're, I don't think, we're, look, it, I shouldn't say I don't think. We're a post-Christian society. There's no question. And the, the values of the West uh, are not holding. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like the virtues that you and I would have ascribed to just you know, and still probably do, those aren't givens anymore necessarily. Do, do you see the same thing or do you see things a little differently? Uh, no, I, I definitely see the same thing. And, and, and I feel like I left maybe the wrong impression in my talk about the, well, the may, Amazonian. So let me, too. Yeah. No, let me, I, I stopped. And, but as I was reflecting on what I said, let me just tie it back that my point is not that it's relativistic and, and their values are fine for them. And my values are fine for me. I do believe, um, that, that the Christian model of virtue, it to even this, it's greater than just virtue. But Christ is the model of virtue that we can look to, and He's not just the ver- the model of virtue for me. He's the model of virtue for the world. And what did He do? He died for others. He gave His life for others. So that is the model of of real virtue. But you're right. In our society, that that has been lost. And when I think about why, and part of the reason that I avoid uh, avoid propaganda, um, well, let me ask you a question. So I'll put you on the spot. If it's, okay. uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to come on your show. Oh, and, yeah, this and, is no, this and is great. Put you on the spot, but this is kind of a test of your cultural literacy. Uh oh. In one question, how do you fight fire? Yeah. Well, they tell me that you fight fire with fire. But okay. that's that's the well, that's the cliche. <laughs> you fight it with water. I mean, I'm not sure what you're. I don't know exactly what you're asking. So I I, I know uh, <laughs> I'm I'm being cagey here. So know, there's I a famous episode of the old Andy Griffith show where okay. the deputy Barney Fife is asking people how do you fight fire, and he's asking okay. it as a rhetorical question because he wants them to say you fight fire with fire, but everyone keeps answering you fight fire with a hose. And okay. so, so my my uh, way of tying that back is: How do you fight propaganda? Yeah. Do you fight propaganda with propaganda, or do you fight propaganda with truth? And it seems that one of the corrosive things to virtue in our society, as I look at, it, is is this idea of propaganda, and I think that that politics is corrosive to virtue and it's corroding virtue across the society because uh, the the stakes of politics are so high. And I know you mm. and I've talked about this before. I don't, I don't want to necessarily rehash the whole thing, but, but the, you know, the largest, richest, most powerful government in the history of the world is up for grabs in uh, in a few battleground counties, and and both sides of that argument are willing to lie 
to get all the power and money that sure. comes along with that. And you've got the direct participants, you've got the beneficiaries of that, and you have this uh, this tribal or herd mentality that says, in, in my opinion, from my observation, it looks like people are willing to uh, say that that the end justifies the means. Sure. But it's not a it's not a honorable end that they're pursuing, and it's unrighteous means that they're using to pursue that. So it's unvirtuous at every level, uh, in in my estimation of how that that unfolding and why I think that process is is corrosive to to virtue. But you've been a participant in that process recently, so maybe you have I feel thoughts like I'm on being that. Accused. <laughs> You've 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 contributed to the problem. Well, I think, you know, when you talk about the political situation where both sides are willing to lie, it's down to a few counties. I mean, it, the thing that comes to mind for me, and this does tie to virtue, and you know, it it seems to me that the ends justify the means when there is nothing greater uh, at stake. And so, if if uh, you know we're just animals, there is no capital T truth. Um, you know, there's good and good and bad, right and wrong, in the sense that as a species or as a tribe, you can kind of say, "Well, this is good for my tribe, and uh, that's all that I have to worry about." It's virtuous to be, you know, look out for my tribe. It's virtuous to look out for my family. But outside of that, anything goes because as long as it benefits us, then we're good. I think you know when you have a higher order of reality, and I think this is what conservatism—at least you know—conservatism is a lot of different things, and that that word doesn't mean anything anymore. But um, if you look at like uh, uh, in in your poli sci guy, uh, like Sir Edmund Burke, you know, like conservatism is is recognizing that there is a king on the throne, a celestial king, and you order your life and your society and everything else around that truth. Well, the problem is, we talked about truth earlier, like, you know, let's Sam Harris is of the world, and I'm picking on Sam. Uh, Sam, you're welcome to come on the show anytime. <laughs> he, he wouldn't even, he wouldn't even look at, uh, he, he, my email will go right to spam. But anyway, th- there is no higher order truth. And so it's just kind of what's good for the species, what's good for me. So I, I where am I going with all that? I, um, did participate in that process, and I think in a world where where there is no higher order truth, and also where I have a breakdown of the institutions that used to kind of mediate between, you know, the individual and, and the state, things like family, uh, the church or synagogue, um, education, arts, and all that, that that mediate truth in a way even for the individual. When all that's stripped away, all that's left is power. There's nothing left but political power. Uh, physical power, et cetera, because you're right back to the kind of Darwinian survival of the fittest. We might be a little bit more polished. We might be a little bit more culturally uh, sophisticated uh, than an Amazonian tribe, but it's still the same formula. It's just applied to a different structure, if you will, maybe a more sophisticated structure with uh, layers. So it's a challenge. Um, I want to go back, if you don't mind, you mentioned uh, Christ as the model for virtue. And, you know, he sacrificed. So Christ laid his life down. I, and I said earlier, you know, Nietzsche, Nietzsche. How do you say Nietzsche? How do you say it? Nietzsche. Nietzsche. There you go. You heard it, ladies and gentlemen. That's the official pronunciation of Friedrichs 
last name going forward. Is it Friedrich? Friedrich Nietzsche? So Nietzsche hated Christianity. He hated the weakness inherent. He hated, he hated the fact that Christ laid his life down, laid his life down, uh, that he became the victim. I mean, it just, it just outraged him and, uh, and hated Christianity for that. So if you look at that as a virtue, you say, well, weakness is a virtue. I mean, is that really the message of Christianity, that weakness is a virtue? What, what is the virtue kind of wrapped up in that sacrifice? I mean, should we always be sacrificing? And I want to maybe take it less theoretical and more specific. So for instance, I know I'm going long here, Myron, but I'm gonna, uh, when I ran my small business, I had employees. And, and from a financial perspective, we hit hard times. I, I ran this business through the economic crisis. And so as a Christian, I initially was like, I need to make sure that my employees are good first. You know, I'm going to sacrifice. So I might not take, you know, the money that I need to take, not just that I should take, but I need to take to make sure that the people working for me are in good shape. Is that, is that Christian virtue? Is that misplaced? Is that sacrifice? I, I did later come to a different understanding, which I'll share in a minute, but I'd just like to know your thoughts on what does that look like in a day-to-day, you know, A, I guess, what is the, tr- the virtue that we're talking about, or the virtues that Christ manifests for us or demonstrates for us, and B, uh, what do those look like in practice in something like a business? I think that the idea of responsibility to, as opposed to responsibility for, is, is a good distinction to make in that. So when you have a business and you have employees and you have customers, partners, whoever are your uh, important stakeholders, you're responsible to those people to look out not only for your own interest, but for their interest as well. But you're not responsible for their outcome. So I, I would apply the same principle that I that I just talked about, which is act justly and love mercy. But that doesn't mean uh, that in every case you have to be the one who sacrifices. So I'm gonna, I'm not going to uh, withhold payment from uh, my employees or from my vendors. That's me acting justly. Um, if if one of my uh, customers is late on a payment and there's a good reason for it, uh, you know, then I'm going to, uh, I'm going to show mercy, but not, not unlimited, right? We, we have, we function in business according to, to contracts and, and understandings and, and the personal side. And there's the scale of it uh, also makes a difference when you have a large corporation that that essentially you know is is a, a system and it's not about the individual um, then holding that system to abiding by its contract is very different than the individual level of hey I've got a a uh, an employee or a contractor who works for me or I've got a uh, a customer but it's a you know an individual or a small business or someone that's doing something that I that I want to support. So I think it becomes difficult when the individual human interaction becomes replaced by the institutional or the organizational interaction as to wh- where does that where do you draw that line and where does it cross over? But there's definitely a difference there in my opinion. So you're saying 
so let me so this is good. Let me take the one example. So the customer doesn't pay on time, and you want to show mercy, and that's cool. I mean, I think that's a very Christ-like. That's a that's a virtuous thing to be gracious, merciful. At the same time, you need cash flow, and if you can't get that thing paid that your team did hard work on and, and diligently delivered to that customer. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're running the risk. I mean, I've been in this situation where you, if you can't make payroll, I mean, me too. Yeah. I mean, you, you know all about that. So, so how do you balance an obligation to your team and your own family, uh, against uh, this desire to be kind of Christ-like in the marketplace? Not that this, this podcast, and just for those watching, this isn't about how to be a Christian in the marketplace, but both Myron and I are coming from uh, framework of Christianity. So this is this is our framework for for virtuous behavior. It has applications across. It doesn't matter. I mean, it does matter what you believe. Uh, it doesn't matter what you believe, though. This isn't solely about Christianity, but we're just speaking through that that uh, lived experience, as I was saying earlier. So how do you balance those two things? Well, and I'll I'll add to what you just said before I answer. Whether someone believes it or not, it's a good mental model for uh, the concept of virtue. Yeah. Uh, so coming back to the distinction of responsible to versus responsible for and, and the level of responsibility, I think that the level of responsibility I have to my employees is greater than the level mm-hmm. of responsibility that I have to my customer. So mm-hmm. uh, the relationship that I have with a customer also varies depending on just the nature of it, you know. Uh, if I think of myself as a customer, my relationship with uh, the neighborhood coffee shop as a customer is very different than my relationship to sure. Amazon.com or Costco as a customer, right? Yeah. So that's the that those are two extremes of this difference uh, of the level of is it personal or is it institutional, right. and and the same would be true in the business. My my level of responsibility to my employees, particularly a very small company uh, like like Northwood Advisors, I have a high level of responsibility to my employees, mm. but also uh, I know my customers, customers personally. I also know that, that uh, they have payroll to meet on their side. So I have some level of responsibility to them, but it's less than, or I'm using this distinction of responsibility to responsibility for another model that I would put in that is the concept of trusteeship, right? So uh, if if someone is a trustee, they're responsible for executing a trust, you know, the sort of the legal standard is how would a reasonable person interpret the level of uh, faithfulness that the trustee has to what's expected of them, right? When I hire an employee, I am taking on a certain level of trusteeship yeah. of their, not their whole life, just their life as a professional working in my business. Mm-hmm. I'm a trustee mm-hmm. of that. And that matters to them. And I, I, I'm i very offended when I see businesses treat that in a cavalier way of uh, hiring someone and not, not treating them valuable as a person sure. in, in a in a professional type job. I mean, there, there's sort of commodity jobs where people come and go and, it, and it's less important, but in, in a way that it's going to impact someone's life and career yeah. to treat someone as, a, as if they're a commodity 
is is very disrespectful and not a virtuous way to uh, to run a business. Well, I think, boy, there's so many so many directions we could go with this. I'll, I'll um, I agree with you 100. percent I think it's one of the things that I like about some of the small business owners that I get to work with as a consultant. A lot of times, these folks. Often, I mean, they care about their employees and they had that sense of trusteeship. They don't presume that they're God. They don't presume that it's their job to make, you know, look at me, I get all the glory because I put your kids through college. They don't ever have that attitude, but they they always take on, it's kind of a sober-mindedness. It's like I'm taking on not just this person, but them and their family's well-being. Not meaning it's all up to me. That person has to produce and they've got to become a good member of the team and so on. But it's not, they're not, that employee doesn't work for them, meaning you better do what I tell you for my good. It's like, I'm bringing you into the company. I care about you. There's a, there's a really nice kind of relationship there. Um, but, but I think of these commodity, you mentioned these commodity jobs. I mean, these things are dehumanizing and to be treated like less than a human. This is, I, I want to go back to an early part of our discussion, you know, I, I, it's, I think it's hard to come to a place to know how to treat people without the transcendent. I think it's hard to come to a place of understanding what truly is virtuous, what truly is good, what is truly true without the transcendent. Because I feel like there's nothing higher or greater than us that defines anything. There's nothing outside of us. And so then I'm left with, well, what's good for me? And um, you can make these kind of secular rationalizations. Well, it's good to take care of my children from an evolutionary uh, perspective because we're going to you know, forward the genetic line and that's hardwired in all the organisms that you want to procreate and, and uh, make sure that your genetic line is carried forward. It's a very reductionist kind of way to look at things. If, if that's what you need to tell yourself, why you love your daughter... <laughs> Or your son, you know, that's, um, but, you know, from where you and I are coming from, we understand that human beings carry God's image. Like human beings have intrinsic value and intrinsic worth. They're not a means to anyone's end. They, they, are, a, they are an end unto themselves. And um, I think that's a really great kind of baseline to start from. Uh, when you're thinking about, you know, like like you were providing some mental models, which I think are good, this idea of trusteeship, this idea of responsible for, responsible to. Um, I think those are good. And I think they become even, and I, I know you're there on this, but they become even more potent when you understand what a human being really is. And I think that's at the root of Society, it's like, well, what is virtue? What is true? What is good? Well, we don't even know what a human being is anymore, and I think that's creating a lot of challenges from a philosophical, political, but in the workplace, it's creating a lot of challenges in the workplace. You hear a lot of, I mean, you and I are Gen Xers. Um, actually, you're just an, you're just you're a millennial. You're so young. <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, I have been accused of being a boomer, and I, oh, I take so I. great so offense at that. Yeah, no, I do too. No, I, I'm not. It's the worst thing for a Gen Xer to be called a boomer. Do you hear that, kids? We don't like it. That's why you do it to us. We should have never let exactly. them know that it bothers us. But um, 
oh, I don't even know where I was going with us. See, I joked and now I lost my, my uh, tenuous train of thought. I do want to say real quick for folks that are joining us live, if you have questions or comments, feel free to throw them in the chat. I'll, uh, if they're decent, I'll throw them up on the screen. Don't worry. I mean, if it's a throwaway, hey, how's it going? I won't embarrass you. But if you have a question or a comment, you know, make sure to jump in. This is uh, one of the reasons and one of the joys of going live is that you can kind of interact a little bit. So if you have thoughts, please uh, throw them out there for Myron or I. would be happy to address them. But yeah, I think this is one of the challenges of our society is that we really don't even know what a human being is. And I, and I, and I, and I suspect that's at the root of a lot of our problems. That I was, oh, I know I was going to go with the, with the generational thing is, you, you know, you and I kind of missed um, our generation is probably the last one to experience more traditional, even though it wasn't hundred percent experience of growing up and working and all that jazz, but generations coming after us, a lot of complaints about the state of work, how dehumanizing it is, how, you know, mindless it is and soul crushing and how hard it is to make a living and to get by. How much of this, um, how much does virtue truth, how much does that play into where we're at right now from your perspective? Well, I, th I think that centralization is another one of those things that in some ways is corrosive to virtue because when you have the big institution, and, and I, I come back to politics because it's maybe the extreme example of it. And, and by the way, I, I often use the, one of my mental models or one of my ways of thinking about the world is that when, when you have sort of a uh, uh, a murky middle that you're trying to understand this concept of defining the middle by the extremes is some just a way that my brain naturally works. So I tend to use so, the extremes as a way to define the middle. Got it. I was going to ask you, okay, so you tend to do that because I think I do as well. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. I, yeah. So, so I go back to politics as the extreme of bigness and centralization in terms of, of power and money. But the same thing then trickles down to to other, other things, especially the more that, that government intrudes into what we would maybe consider the private sector, which becomes less and less private. Hmm. Uh, this idea that uh, people operate out of fear when, when they have less and less control over their lives. And, and one of the things that happens when people operate out of fear is uh, the uh, the concept of the the amygdala versus the cortex, and, and I know you and I, I come out of a uh, of a podcast community that No Agenda show that talks about the amygdala. Well, that to, to really understand that the amygdala is the more uh, fight, flight, or freeze response part of the brain, as opposed survival. to the cortex, which is the exactly the survival part. Which uh, and the cortex is is more of the rational thinking processing part of the brain and i've seen different numbers on this i'm not a i'm not a brain neuroscientist but but uh the amygdala is let's say at least 20 times faster than the cortex and and some people think it's even much much uh more of a difference than that but it's at least 20 times faster so so when you receive a stimulus that causes you to be fearful that survival, fight, flight, or freeze response is going to kick in 20 times faster than your rational, uh, let's say virtuous, uh, the virtuous part of the brain, uh, as well as other things. But so when people are reacting in fear, 
they tend to have more of that herd mentality that's uh, so it's not that i am going to think about what's right it's i'm going to think about what's going to help me survive and okay. being part of the herd uh, is a survival response. So I'll give again an extreme example of it. But when, when a uh, a host on a national news show, whether it's uh, CNN or Fox, or you know, I'm not taking sides politically. When they go on and they give commentary about an event, um, they're lying, and they know they're lying, <laughs> and we know they're lying, and they know that we know that they're lying. So. Why are they doing that? And the answer, I, I mean, it could be in multiple things, but I think the primary answer is that, that um, they are signaling willingness to do whatever it takes to be part of the herd. Hmm. Uh, and, and so and you think this it's is true a, for both sides. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Are, are you disagreeing? <laughs> No, I'm just, uh, I'm just want, I just want, I'm just, no, I'm yeah. not disagreeing, but I'm, okay. I want to, I want to make a point of clarity because usually when you hear these kinds of conversations, an individual will say, well, that team is lying. You know, uh, CNN, MSNBC, oh my gosh, they're horrible, horrible. Well, I love Fox News. You know, I watch Fox News. That's where, that's where I really, and, and what you're saying is no, they're all lying. Correct? Is that what I'm hearing? I, I, I am. In fact, let Your me. Honor, I, I, I know I've been. I've been. I've been. Uh, I'm not disagreeing, been, by the way. I just want to be clear quoting the Bible a lot on this episode, and I hope that's okay. But uh, you know, I've I, lost I my about, whole viewership, Myron. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry about that. Uh, well, again, whether someone believes it or not, I think these are good mental models of, of virtue, and and sure. so one of the things that that uh, that Jesus said uh, is. Uh, take the the log out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out of yeah, your your point. brother's eye, and and to me that also is a part of virtue uh, for which politics is corrosive because mm. you cannot in a political situation go on TV and criticize your own side. Uh, you have to be loyal to your own side right. and criticize the other side, whereas virtue means you could. And this, by the way, uh, is is why the libertarians will never, ever gain any traction politically, because the libertarian instinct is to criticize their own side, which I think is very virtuous, sure. but it's politically not pragmatic. Boy, by the way, Mostly Day Hiking says, yes, they're all lying. Uh, and then this is uh, this is my eldest. He's watching from Rochester. He says, "Bible, I'm out." Thanks, Josh. Oh, <laughs> uh, hey, Josh, you got a birthday coming up. You better stay in if you wanna if you know what's good for you. <laughs> um, and then mostly day hiking says uh, even Newsmax. Yeah, I I do think this is important, and I think are you familiar with um, oh, what's his name now? He's passed away. He was a theologian. Uh, Wilbur, uh, what was Wilbur's, um, he, he wrote a book called the spirit of the disciplines, uh, et cetera. I, I'm going to go blank. It'll come to me later, but he, uh, in one of his books made the comment that, that moral excellence gives one the right to lead, meaning the more virtuous someone is, it gives them the right to lead, not meaning that you have to behave a certain way and then you can take for yourself the right. But if you're going to lead people, you have to be morally excellent. 
otherwise, you, you, you know, you're, 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 I mean, it's not good. It's not good for the society. It's not good for the people, et cetera, the community to have people that lack virtue to lead. You have to ask the question, like, how do we know when someone's virtuous? But I think our system is so corrupted. And it, I think part of this, I mean, you, you know, you talk about, hey, the libertarians are more virtuous in that uh, they're a little bit more honest about things. I think part of our problem, too, is our pluralistic society. I mean, we're talking, you know, virtue, business, and life here, but we seem to be talking a lot more about other things. It's great. But I think pluralism gets in the way of virtue because in a pluralistic society, which is supposedly what America is, although it's it's less and less pluralistic. Oh, thank you. Josh says Dallas Willard. Yes, that is the person. Thanks, Josh. Uh, that's the theologian. He passed away a few years ago. But um, a pluralistic society can't agree on what's virtuous necessarily. So it's like if you're looking for leaders that are virtuous, you look at our society now, like, what is virtue and what qualities should we be looking for in leaders that we can trust? Who should be leading us? Uh, pluralism kind of throws a hand grenade. Now, when America was founded, it was a very, um, I will say, from a national perspective, it was a Christian nation. I understand that Christianity is not a state religion, but as kind of a, a, a civic religion we'll say, not a state mandated, but just a civic religion, Christianity really was the baseline for America. It was widely the, the religion of the day, the civic religion. But you get rid of that, and what are you left with? I mean, even, I mean, you, you know, you're a Vogelin fan. Vogelin gets into, you know, the civic religion of the modern world, the modern West is Gnosticism. We, we won't go down that whole rabbit trail right now. Don't but get me you, started. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll need another episode. That's right. How much time do you have, by the way? I don't want to, we're at one o'clock. I want to be respectful. I, I, I'm good. Yeah. Okay. No um, hard stop. Yeah, cool. So this will be a four hour. We're going to beat Joe Rogan. <laughs> we're just, <laughs> we're just not going to get the $250 million deal with Spotify, supposedly that he just got. Um, Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's not what you told me earlier. <laughs> I said I'd share the revenue, but like half of zero. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Oh, nice. Um, there was no revenue discussion before this, just for the, for the audience. Anyway, I, I just think we're, we're on a kind of difficult ground because we, it's, in a pluralistic society, you can't impose upon the society a set of values uh, that, that everyone then has to kind of adhere to. And then you can say, well, who's, who's, who exemplifies those values most? And so at this point, like you have different groups that value different things and you get this lust for power and corruption. I, I feel like I'm just complaining. I, I don't even know if I'm asking a question. I guess I'm just well, let, let me Let me tie yeah. it back to, uh, Please do. you know, Bar Baron Montesquieu, uh, yep. who was one of the influential thinkers. I believe he... Uh, I believe it's, uh, 1680 or 90 birth lived until the mid mid part of the 1700s, That's if I'm remembering right. Up here. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> Fact check me. Uh, yep. If I'm off Sorry, by more than two centuries, Actually, I'm going to let, uh, let no, I'm going to let the, I'm going to let the audience do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, he was very influential to the founders of, of the United States, right? Especially I believe Madison, uh, was, had, uh, really imbibed Montesquieu. And Montesquieu um, 
was certainly a progenitor of political science in breaking down different systems of government. And he he advocated that a republic uh, could be a good system of government. But he put two two qualifiers on that. And um, one is that it should be basically a small, uh, that a republic would be good for a small uh, polity, a small, you know, small sure. country, small sure. nation, uh, but also that it required that the people be virtuous, and mm. so, uh, and, and by the way, none of none of the people at that time were advocating democracy. Uh, the right. they thought that was abhorrent, but right. um, I guess the closest would have been, uh, you know, John Stuart Mill, I believe was a limited proponent of democracy, but he he still thought it had a lot of dangers that sure. that the tyranny of the majority uh, you know would be uh, yeah. a, a concern and so forth. But but at any rate, by any standard that anyone has ever said from a clear thinking you know, mental model perspective, uh, mm-hmm. which I, I think even though he didn't use the term, that's where Montesquieu is coming from. Um, no one thinks that what we have today, which is a gigantic, uh, not very virtuous society right. in some ways, um, it, and it's a, I think it's a vicious cycle, really. You know, there are virtuous cycles that tend to make things better and better and vicious cycles that tend to take, make things worse and worse. And I think, I think that, that the decline of individual virtue is influenced by the political system, which then influences the political system, and it's become a, a vicious cycle. Okay. Uh, and and I, I, by the way, I just want to say I've been accused by people who hear me talking like this to say that somehow I, I, I hate America or something like that. And <laughs> and and I want to say no. I, I there. I I love I love America. I make a distinction between the federal government of the United States of America. And America. Those sure. are not synonymous for me. Sure. Well, let me, so we do have a question I want to throw up in just a minute. But before I do that, um, the, I think Montesquieu and the people that he informed, the founders of the country, of our nation, there's an underlying assumption in there, which is, uh, so, so Republic great, although we have gotten larger, we're not a small polity anymore. Uh, but but even still, a republic could work. Absolutely, I think the challenge is this assumption that the virtues hold, and I and I feel like I've been trying to get at this. You don't have to necessarily disagree, but the virtues are fluid. I mean, if if the society does not, so so I think the assumption that someone like a Montesquieu um, is making is that it's a Christian West. That was just like it was probably unthinkable to to someone in the 1600s, that the West would be secular, even the word secular. I mean, they thought of secular in the sense of civic power versus um, spiritual power. You have a pope and a king, so you've got civic or um, what's the other word? I'm going to, like a terrestrial power versus a, a heavenly power. So you have the authority of the church and you have the authority of the state, but, they, but there was no sense that you were going to get rid of the authority of the church. Now, it could have been a different church. It may not have been the Catholic church. Maybe it was after you know Luther, Luther's theses, et cetera, the Reformation. It was the Protestant. Uh, you even had the Pur- Puritans 
the the uh, the, the English Civil War with the Puritans, no hierarchy. Uh, but but Montesquieu's assuming that society embraces a set of values or virtues that are based on the Christian understanding of the world, and that is just not the case anymore. So the whole thing falls apart because you don't have virtuous people. Because it's not that people are saying I refuse to be virtuous; they're saying I don't think that's vir- I don't think that behavior is good. I don't think it's good to be chaste. I don't think it's good to tell kids not to have sex until they get married. I don't think it's good to say that only a man and a woman should marry one another. We actually. F- in our society, that's actually bad. It's, it's an evil to say that only men and women should marry one another, not men marrying men and women, women, etc. So I think that's one of the challenges of, I don't mean to say that Montesquieu's flawed, but his thinking falls apart because he, I, I assume he didn't imagine the world that we're in right now where it's just stripped away. And I want to get to mostly De Hiking's question, but what do you think about that before I put his question up on the screen? Uh, I think... I think largely you're right. I I, I, I mostly agree with you. Um, and let me. We can just stop right there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really need to qualify it. <laughs> so, well, again, I, one of the things I like about our conversations is I'm always thinking theoretical, and you help bring it back down to the practical. Uh, mm. And and so I'm going to go back to. A little bit of theory, and then we can see how we uh, bring this back to practical, and then and sure. then we can get to the questions. So, uh, I might be wrong about this, but I believe it was John Rawls, um, more oh, modern uh, political Rawlsian. thinker, who was it Rawls who who talked about how to how to you know, sort of create a system of government in which uh, the you would design ideal laws that would not benefit the governed. Uh, the, the the governing more than the governed, yeah, uh, and yeah. and yeah, yeah. I, um, on the fly, pulled that one out. So uh, clearly, we don't have that, right? Are the people who are governing uh, benefiting from from being in those positions today? I right. think I think pretty much yes, right? Uh, and so so when we think about that idea of of governing with virtue. Uh, it's always just been theory. You know, um, you know, George Washington, at the time the country was founded, was almost certainly the richest man in America by far, by mm-hmm. like just a wide, wide margin. Um, and, and so my criticisms of Washington are not uh, what a lot of people go to, which is, you know, his, his involvement with slavery, um, even though I'm not a fan of slavery. I can see both sides of that issue. He, he inherited and he allegedly treated his slaves. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer on that one. But what I do know is that a lot of his wealth he got by essentially being a corrupt bureaucrat. He was the mm. land surveyor who, who went out and in the process of surveying land for the colony of Virginia, claimed vast, vast tracts of land for himself. Yes. And, I've heard and the so, same thing. yeah. He went from being a rich man to being the richest man. Then when he's president, uh, he sends the army out into western Pennsylvania to put down the Whiskey Rebellion, um, which is, you know, a policy that favors eastern distilleries at the expense of western distilleries. And then after he gets out of office, what does he do? He founds a distillery uh, on the East Coast, and so so uh, you know I'm not saying that Washington. Waited. 
by today's well, yeah, standards. Yeah. By t- it's like <laughs> at least he waited. But I'm not. Yeah, yeah your point's well taken. But my my point is not whether Washington was a good guy or a bad right, guy. Right. In some, I, I don't know the answer to that. But my point being that the have we ever had a system in which the governing class did not benefit uh, from being in that position? And the answer sure. is no, we, we, we never have. So I think, I guess that's where I'm trying to d- draw the distinction between the theory and practice of uh, ha- has, has it ever worked? And right. I think the answer well, is no. But I, I would go back to um, – my example, when I was running my little agency, you know, a handful of people, 10 people, 12 people, eight people, we kind of went up and down a little bit. Uh, and this idea that like, well, I need to make sure everybody else is paid before me. And what would end up happening is like, you know, my family and I, I mean, we got, we were fine. It wasn't like we were struggling, but we never really, for a long time, we never got out of the blocks. It was like everybody was else was first. What I, and, and I, I got exposed to this book. I forget the name of the book now. But one of the concepts in there was you have to pay yourself first. So that, so this was an accountant, business advisor, and this was really geared at companies 10 million and lower. I was under 10 million. We were just over a million. The company wasn't huge. And he said, you have to pay yourself first. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. Now, that went against my kind of Christian, like, no, you're supposed to be Christ-like. Everybody else has to come first, not me. That's selfish. But his point was so good. It, and this is where the, the kind of... Um, and we're talking about politicians benefiting from being in politics. I had to pay myself first for a couple of reasons. First of all, the company needs a healthy, strong leader. If I'm barely hanging on financially and my family isn't doing well, I'm distracted, I'm stressed, I'm going to make bad decisions based on my personal financial situation. Like I'm not going to make, I'm not going to be a good leader if I'm, if my gnawing stomach, my figurative gnawing stomach is always informing my decision-making. You have to make bigger, broader, more creative and long-term decisions for your team. And you're not going to do that if you're worried about you're going to lose the house in a month. So that, so that was one good reason. The other reason, which was genius, when you pay yourself first, and he said, don't be a pig. It doesn't mean like if you've got a million dollar business you're taking half a million dollar salary. You don't deserve a half a million dollar salary, but you ought to be able to take 90, 150. You ought to be able to take a good chunk for, for you as the owner. By paying yourself first, you force yourself to run an efficient company. See, when you, re- when you refuse to pay yourself first, you're actually subsidizing waste often. There might be employees, and I don't mean this in waste, but there are employees that underperform, but you, know, you have a heart for them. You might have services like we've got the you know the the chilled water that's delivered once a week, and we got the you know the lady comes in and waters the plants for us, or you know I'm just making stuff up here. Once you start paying yourself first, you're like, well, there's no money, so then you have to look at the business and go, well, where are we wasting money? And then also it drives you to say, we need to get sales in here. So by paying yourself first, you're putting healthy stress on the business. And you're also putting yourself in a position where you can make better decisions. And you're aligning actually your interests with the business's interests. And everybody wins when you do that. It's a little counterintuitive. But when I heard that, I had this kind of aha moment. So I think, and I I bet you would agree, I don't have a problem with politicians benefiting on some level from being in office. And quite frankly, it's impossible not to. It's like if you, if you, like when I ran for city council, 
I, I wasn't saying like, I'm going to take advantage, but you're going to know about coming decisions. You're going to know about properties that become available. You're at the table. People want to have influence with you. I don't mean to say that that's fine and you ought to take advantage, but it's impossible to be in that position and not gain even uh, an uh, informational advantage over everybody else in town. You can't help it. Uh, now, how do you act so, on that? That's where virtue comes into play. This is where it's well, like, let well, let me ask it... a, a question about that specifically. Sure, right. So, sure. so um, in, uh, in insider trading is illegal. Mm. That's right. Unless you're a member of Congress. Right. Right. So, so that's just, I'm a, not, that's an immoral law. There you go. Exactly. That is the difference to yeah. either insider trading is equally illegal right. or there's no law against insider. Well, trading. I mean, uh, look, and if you're uh, if you're listening to this and you're very political one side or the other, I mean, look at Hunter Biden. Now you can sit. It, it, if you're a Democrat, you're going to. Oh, and if you're a Republican, you can, but there are some very specific things about Hunter Biden that are incontroversible, uh, incontrovertible, whatever. Uh, the fact that he lost, that he kind of let uh, a gun, you know, lose the, the laptop proven to be his and, and horrendous, horrendous images on that laptop. Forget, uh, hey, we got Joe Biden, the big guy and all that financial stuff. You just, I mean, I've sadly not wanting to seen some of the images of that were from his computer and they were sickening uh, and illegal. So, and yet at the same time, he's, you know, he's skated. Now I get it. You don't want to just go after every president and his family because that, that creates other problems. But there is definitely a two sets of laws for the society. I'm not, I'm not advocating for that. Um, but at the same time, to, ex like, you know, to expect a politician to get into office and to not have some way that they've grown and benefited beyond just the experience, I, I just think the, well, the laws they need would, to be they would, ethical. They would, gain, um, they would gain knowledge. They would gain visibility, reputation, you know, all of these natural things that happen. They go consult afterwards, et cetera. Yeah. 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 Um, no, I, I agree. And even, even the Hunter Biden thing, I, I'm going to, I'm going to put back on that empathetic, see both sides hat. Okay. Uh, the question of whether to prosecute someone is a judgment call. Mm -hmm. But when we come to the fact that there literally are different sets of laws that's, for Congress versus yep. not Congress. Yep. Yeah. There's a there's a do not call registry that I don't think is very effective, but you know, I can put my phone number on a registry and say, uh, no one's allowed to call me for solicitation. Oh, right. but political campaigns are exempted from that. Right. right? right. Yeah. So so there, you know, uh, you could just go down all of the not not the judgment call of whether to enforce it or sure. not, like sure. like under Biden, but just blatantly oh, uh, unjust laws that favor the people in government. There are two classes. I mean, there are more than two classes, but there is a there are there is a class. A class is a singular thing. There is a class of people that live on a whole nother level, and it's not just that they enjoy more financial benefits. I mean, they are above the law that you and I live by. Now there are other things that they can get tripped up on. If you got if you get on the wrong side of that group, you can get cast out. You can end up dead in prison. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Um, but there is two laws. Let me throw up. Let me throw up. Uh, yeah, we got a question, question that's been waiting. 
Where do you gentlemen see society in five to 10 years from now? I'm, gonna, I'm not going to answer that, but you go first. I'll, I'll, I don't know if I have an answer, but what do you think of that, Myron? Five to 10 years is too short of a timeline uh, for me, to be honest. I, I'd love to answer that question. Uh, and and maybe let, let me start with a longer timeline and then maybe work back. I'll try okay. to answer the question. Uh, but, you know, when I look longer term, uh, I think the pendulum will swing in society toward more decentralization, right? So right now we we have had a trend towards centralization, bigger government, um, bigger companies, bigger everything. And I, I think that the trend is... And I can't say, obviously, I'm, I'm predicting the future and I'm going to be wrong, but I just think that there's a likelihood that that will swing back toward a more decentralized uh, model. Uh, I, and go I, ahead. Want, I just want, when you said, hey, he said five to 10 years, you said, well, let me go further out. When do you see that decentralization becoming recognizable in society? Like how much time do you think it takes to get there? I, I started to jump the train. Yeah. I just want to. No, no, no. I, yeah. I, I would say, um, 2050 to, uh, and, and following. Okay. Uh, and okay. there's some, I, I don't want to go into why I'm picking that number. Uh, it's a, that would be a, a longer rabbit trail, but, but so, so in five to 10 years, Will the will the trend of centralization have peaked? Will will the transition from greater centralization to more decentralization happen gradually? You know, as the pendulum that swings up and reaches its its apex and then swings back, or will it? Will there be something drastic, something violent? that impacts and shoves it the other way. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I hope that it's not violent, but, you know, these things are hard to call. Uh, so so in five to ten years, I think that the conflict between centralization and decentralization might be nearing its peak and either peacefully or less peacefully start to push the other way. Fair enough. No, that's good. And okay. I, I will say that I think that a that a – more decentralized society would put the onus of virtue back on the individual sure. because you can be less reliant on the on the the institution the nation sure. the tribe whatever so so that it doesn't mean that all people will be more virtuous it will mean it means it will highlight personal virtue more so than in a, in a centralized society I think that's good. I um, probably align with that to a degree. I, I think five, next five, I mean, five is short, although a lot can happen in a short period of time. Uh, you have the gradually, then suddenly dynamic, uh, slowly, then suddenly. But um, I think five to 10 years, you're going to see growing totalitarianism. Uh, it might be soft totalitarianism, but it's going to be enforced through technology, through uh, access to goods and services, access to financial instruments, et cetera. You'll, you'll see people more and more controlled by that. It's already happening, people getting debanked, et cetera. So I see more centralization, like you say, and I think I see more of this, um, you, you know, we're, we're, we're losing pluralism. There's not going to be room for dissenting views uh, as we go forward. Now, five to 10 years, I just think you're going to see that grow more and more. 
I think what'll happen is I don't think that it'll be peaceful. I'm not. I'm not like rah rah civil war. I don't. I'm, but I, the nature of the growing secular consensus is based on delusion. Uh, the, the 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 existing state, you know, it just believes that it can it can dictate what is real and true. Uh, through fiat legislation, through, you know, again, debanking people and so on and cutting them out of society. You look at China, it's ahead of us in all this. It's leveraging technology to control its people in such a way. So the, the thing for me is I, I'm concerned about two things. I think it will grow more and more. I, so the, the good thing in this is through that, I think more and more people are going to come to the truth capital T. I think more people are going to be starving and hungry because the human nature wants to know what's true and real. I think this provides an opportunity for more people to come into uh, a transcendent relationship, a personal relationship with God. You see this already happening with people like Naomi Wolf and others that have been lifelong atheists, leftists, etc., coming to faith. And not because somebody you know, some evangelical, I got to get my windows here, witness to them, but because they started asking questions like, hey, what's going on around me? Like COVID did this for a lot of people and started asking questions. Mm. So I think more and more um, dehumanization and and totalitarian, uh, the state involved in every aspect of our life, uh, less pluralism, less freedom, at the same time, a trend of people coming to Christ and finding the truth of the transcendent, and then I think an implosion, because this current system, the cathedral, is structured, and I don't mean the Christian, I mean the secular cathedral, is structured on delusion, things that are not true, it can't sustain itself. At some point, it'll implode. And in the, in the, human nature, this fact that we bear God's image, that we desire truth, will win out. But I, but it, it, um, it, I, th- I think that's going to be an ugly birth. I don't think that's going to be a peaceful birth, sadly. Now, I think also, I think that's way out. That I think this has got a ways to go before it gets to that point. I, I'm not in a position to prognosticate that. but, but um, so, so I have hope, meaning I know it's going to come right at some point, and I think there's really great work to do in the process, and I think that, that true seekers will be hungry for the truth and community, et cetera, and there's opportunities to find, like, like gold together, so I, so I'm I'm positive. Although I think it happens in an environment that's that's tough. That's my that's my cheery. Thanks for joining the podcast. Make sure to like and subscribe <laughs> for more <laughs> tips and tricks on successful living. Uh, I, next, I'll be I, interviewing Joel Osteen. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, can I can I just grab the mic back for a second? Yeah, and, please. And I'll even give you the whole little, screen. How's that? Uh, oh wow, you're too generous. Uh, well, I just wanted to go back to uh, my the decentralization thing, and I'd mm-hmm. love to uh, to dialogue with folks on this. And and while I don't spend a lot of time hanging out on on YouTube, I, I will happily join in the the comments uh, on YouTube following this uh, if anyone wants to dialogue about this. But when I think about decentralization and some of the the trends, let me just throw out a few. A few things to think about, right? So we are really close to a point where someone with a cheap drone, I don't know, hundreds or thousands of dollars, will be able to sink an aircraft carrier, 
Now, depending on which side of that you're on, that might be, that's great or that's scary. I'm not in either of those camps. I, I just am looking at the reality of this saying, this is real, right? And, uh, and then uh, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin uh, specifically. I'm not a fan of the broader cryptocurrency, and I know Bitcoin certainly has has its challenges, but it's also continued to evolve to address those challenges. So the fact that that the the hegemonic currency, the U.S. dollar, is being actively undermined, um, while other politically uh, backed alternatives, um, you know, BRICS and and whatever, sure. uh, are, are out China, there. Russia. But also, but there's this this fully decentralized personal alternative of, of Bitcoin that may or may not succeed, but I'm just saying as a, as a mental model, thinking of these decentralized alternatives. Um, now, think about the movie Oppenheimer, which I know was an interesting, well-made movie in some ways, it glorif- really glorified the individual Oppenheimer, uh, who did play an important role, but uh, it was really a, uh, a collective effort. Uh, but now, what's going to happen? And I know this is going to just sound absolutely ridiculous, but in the same way that bringing down an aircraft carrier with a cheap drone would have sounded ridiculous, something is going to make nuclear weapons obsolete. Like, I don't know what it's going to be, but when, because nuclear weapons have been a big part of centralizing political power in in the 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 executive branch in America because you got to have the president with the finger on the button and they've got the, the football, football. And, and, right, yeah. the football exactly when nuclear weapons become obsolete by whatever sci-fi that I can't yet imagine and yet once it comes along everybody will be like oh well that's obvious uh, you know so these kinds of things I see as ways in which um, the decentralization will happen when when radio technology uh, advances to a level that we can have a true mesh internet of everybody has their own little their own little beacon you know their own little uh, radio um, mm-hmm. antenna and it connects to their neighbors and their neighbors and their neighbors and their neighbors and you Are have you really no Neuralink? single point of failure. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm I'm just saying that that right now the internet is highly centralized through mm. through the uh, the tier one providers, the big fiber, right? And, and so the you know, the FBI or the CIA or the NSA can go to these big providers and spy. They could shut down the internet. They could do all these things. At some point, technology is going to facilitate this decentralization. And I see it. I'm not a Hegelian. I don't see history as inevitable. Uh, I'm just saying when, when I look at the trends, these are why, these are the reasons why I'm, I'm seeing decentralization. And for me, I think that's a good thing. I'm optimistic about it. Uh, and it's a part of why I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that this trend could reverse in a more peaceful way, as opposed to, uh, you know, a civil war conflict type of way. Well, let me, so this is interesting. So there's a, there's a assumption kind of at the base of a few things you've said, and that is that things like Bitcoin and mesh networks will be legal. 
And what do you, what, you know, is it, it, there's a high likelihood, I mean, you can see movements by the Fed, et cetera, where they're trying to hedge in things like Bitcoin. Uh, and by the way, I want to just sort of throw up here, um, mostly day hiking said, Bitcoin is, a, is a, I think he means as rigged as everything else. Sam Bankman-Fried is the classic example. We won't, we won't, Del, I just threw that up there for kind of, yeah, uh, yeah. but, but what do you, you know, I agree with your concept and I, and I just want to make the statement. I think that you're a classical liberal, meaning, uh, and forgive me for saying this, I don't mean it in a, in a, in a bad way, but you say, Hey, I think through the markets and through the power of the individual and through human discovery and application of those discoveries into technology that we're going to find new ways forward that make life better. So we have a unique set of problems right now. And one of those problems is a growing state and kind of, I use the word totalitarian, you didn't, but I'll just throw that in there, growing state totalitarianism. But then there's this decentralization thing that technology is providing us that could be a way forward. Could be, you're not like predicting, you're just saying, I think there's some interesting things happening. To me, that <laughs> sounds like a very, um, kind of, not positivist, because that's like total science, but like, hey, a classical liberal, we're gonna find new ways forward. And when we do, life will get better. Um, what happens when the state outlaws those things, when it says you may not have Bitcoin, you're an enemy of the state if you have a mesh network, you must be up to no good. And all the television media stations are making, oh my gosh, you know, this. we think this terrorist had a mesh network and everyone's scared of mesh networks now. And what are your thoughts on that? Because that, that's what I see. I, I feel like we're in a world right now where, you, where your freedoms are not guaranteed. You, they're assumed um, the state has the right to pull them at any moment. Are you, am I seeing things too negatively? I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I think, again, I'm I'm thinking of that, you know, 30 to 80 year no, fair down enough. the road fair time enough. frame. Uh, so. I mean, do you see Bitcoin being made illegal or, or, or you know, technologies like Bitcoin? Or that you can only get like a stable coin through the treasury kind of thing, approved, approved currencies. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't, it, it, it could happen. But I'm as much as I, I think that we should be concerned about government power uh, and its ability to uh, harm individuals. Uh, I, I, it's it's not omnipotent. Right. And so. Um, the, you know, the British Empire couldn't hold on to um, 13 colonies on the Atlantic seaboard. Yeah, uh, fair enough. <laughs> right. And, well, that's, and, and I talk so, about okay. implosion, too. It can't sustain yeah. it can't sustain where it's going. So I I'll give you I mean, I want to be clear. I like your optimism. I, I like I need to hear it like it's good. So don't take me the wrong way. I just I'm not trying to knock your argument down, but. My mind goes to well. What if they outlaw it? And with technology, what if they control? And how do you? Yeah. I, well, I'm not right trying now, to undermine, though. right. So, so you look at what's happening right now in the ability of of the U.S. Treasury slash Federal Reserve slash whatever are those you know American institutions that hold the dollar as the hegemonic currency. Um, that's not only waning; it's being actively undermined by U.S. policy. Uh, mm -hmm. And so other nations are actively looking for alternatives, uh, whether that be, uh, you know, the BRICS or 
or gold or you know who knows the the ruble the yen uh, yeah so right now the american the us federal government has a lot of ability to control what happens in in the currency sphere uh, by both the power of the dollar as well as as the military you know you look at people who threatened to sell oil in something other than dollars and and what happened to them well saddam hussein was one um yeah uh, Muammar Gaddafi was another, right? And, and uh, uh, Putin is another. They're they're doing everything they can to take him down. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so, but when when these trends come together, right? When when the supremacy of the aircraft carrier is is over, which I think it's largely over now, but uh, certainly not not finally over, uh, and. You know, the U.S. hasn't won a war. We haven't won a war in a long, long time. So our military supremacy uh, is is questionable. The mm. currency supremacy is questionable. At some point, what the U.S. government thinks about Bitcoin uh, will will be less and less relevant. And um, while I, you know, I. Uh, certainly appreciate the the comment about Bitcoin being rigged, and and it might be true. I, I don't agree, but that you know that's a that's a matter of of uh, whether Bitcoin is right. is the thing or gold is the thing or something well, is were, the thing, you, or simply were, that there's not a hegemonic currency and people are yeah. free to you know choose you, other. You were currencies. using Bitcoin as an example of a kind of technology that allows decentralized currencies. You, you I, I you. You even said yeah. as much. It was like Bitcoin's kind of the one I'm talking about, but it's it's blockchain that allows this to happen. Correct? Um, no, I, I'm actually largely, uh, and I'm sorry, uh, day hiking. I think mostly day hiking was mostly the the, hiking. the name. Yeah, I largely agree with what mostly day hiking said. As uh, Sam Bankman-Fried is the classic example of cryptocurrency. I think that that there's one cryptocurrency uh, that passes muster, and one that is Bitcoin. To rule them all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, except it doesn't rule them all. It is the decentralized one. That's well, the problem. The others are highly yeah. centralized, or or you know they've all got their flaws. In my opinion, uh, Bitcoin is the the one that that I think is currently positioned to be a decentralized free mm. free as in liberty not free as in no cost uh, free. Uh, a, a free currency yeah but i might be wrong but right. you're right i'm using that as a mental model of decentralization not sure. making a market prediction yeah i mean you it sounds like you're all in for bitcoin but at the same time you weren't advocating for bitcoin you weren't making a pitch you're just saying as an example of decentralization, let's look at currencies. Bitcoin's a great example. We have technology now. Uh, I'm with you. This is this is good. I, I feel like um, it's funny, you know, you do these conversations and you start out, hey, we're going to talk about virtue in business. And uh, here we are talking about global totalitarianism and, and the hope for decentralization of mankind's uh, Towards mankind's freedom and flourishing. <laughs> this is great. And what are we? We're an hour and 37 minutes in. Myron, I really appreciate this. Thank you so much. I mean, first of all, thank you for your friendship. I mean, you're just a great guy. 
Likewise. I, I enjoyed our, our visit. And I think, um, you know, for today to be willing to jump in this, like I'm getting back onto the YouTubes and to do a live stream together and just very gracious. Uh, is there anything, I guess, as we're closing here, is there anything that you wanted to get to or anything that came out of our discussion that you'd like to address uh, before we close? I just want to make sure that I give you a chance. And then lastly, after you answer that, please tell people how they can find you uh, if they want to follow up. And because you offer to have a discussion at some point. So how can people get in touch with you? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I don't really think I have any closing statement that, that, uh, that I want to make other than to likewise, thank you for having me on. And, uh, uh, hopefully we could do it again sometime. Um, Absolutely. People can can find me uh, easily in a couple ways. So my my email address uh, is uh, I have a couple of them. The easiest one is, to spell is Myron M Y R O N at radshop.com. R A D as in dog S H O P dot com. You use a different one, Mike, and that's fine. I'm not saying you should okay. switch. Just say okay. the easy. I'm gonna make a note. Yeah. Here. Yeah, yeah. So Myron at radshop.com is an easy way to, to reach me. But uh, also um, uh, LinkedIn is an easy way to find me. LinkedIn is oh, not as, as useful as a communication mechanism as it used to be. It's gotten mm -hmm. very, uh, yeah. very centralized and woke, uh, but it's still easy to connect with people there. So uh, and then, as I said, I, I don't spend a lot of time hanging out on on YouTube because I don't like how their algorithms propagandize me, but I certainly will make a point to check out this video on YouTube and uh, interact on the comments if, if folks have stuff they want to talk about. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Myron. You, uh, you've been a great conversation partner. I really appreciate it. You've challenged me, and I'm coming away from this discussion more hopeful than when I entered in. I, I, I still believe like the kind of direction we're going <laughs> I don't think we're necessarily misaligned. I feel like you've brought things to that table, to the table that I, that I haven't been considering. And um, I'm grateful for that. And this is the wonderful thing about relationships. Uh, you mentioned before about your podcast, the uh, uh, Mental Supermodels, and you really need a, a co-host. You had your co-host, and he's unable, unable to participate now. But I think that interaction is so important. I, I feel like we always get to a better place when people come together, interact as as honest actors uh, with good intent. Um, not everybody comes to the table with good intentions, but I'm very grateful for your mind, your perspective, and the heart that you brought to this. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, folks, thanks for joining us. That's it for this one. Uh, make sure to like and subscribe on all the things you do here on YouTube for these two old Gen Xers. Uh, love you guys. We'll catch you in the next episode. Cheers. Cheers.